0: So uh, it's good to be back. We, um Lynn and I, have just been away for uh, two weeks doing some work and on vacation. We arrived back last night. It's really good to be here. Just really want to, um, especially thank uh, David and the team for just really ministering um, to the guys in uh, Veridian uh, this week. So bless you guys. It's uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, we're going to finish uh, today. Whoops. We're going to finish today the series that we've been looking at. Um, called Fuel Your Devotion. So if you've not been with us over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how God moved through the church in Acts 2, and one of the keys in that passage uh, was where people were devoted, or they devoted themselves to the fellowship and to teaching and to so many different things. And we pointed out that, you know, kind of nowadays, what seems to be happening is almost churches are competing for people, and putting on programs, and it's almost a bit like before Jesus came where we had the leaders doing everything, and people just turning up and watching and, and just seeing, and, and we realize when we look at the early church, God was empowering everybody. Everybody has a gift. Everybody has a purpose. Everybody has a part to play. We saw it this week. So we've been looking at that this week, and we've been looking at that over the last few weeks, and today I want to change things up a little bit and finish a little bit more by looking at what Jesus did. So there's been a little bit of a kind of hyperbole with this series. Um, So we've been using the phrase, or I've been using the phrase, uh, they were devoted all by themselves, to highlight the fact that they didn't need someone to be devoted for them. But the reality is, they weren't devoted just on their own. They needed other people to be with them. And uh, so do I, and so do you. Many of us look for devotion, um, especially in our marriages and with our relationships. Um, that was very much the case for me uh, when I was younger, and when Lynn and I started to date. We, we had a bit of a rocky start. I don't think I've ever told you this story. Um, but on our first date, Lynn picked me up in her car. She was the one with the flash car. Um, and she picked me up, and when she picked me up, she said, hey, um, got a problem. Uh, The headlights are working on my my car, only one light's working. And we went for a drive in, in the hills, just outside Manchester, and it got a bit dark, and we got pulled over by the police, and we stopped on a hill, and we stopped on a hill, and the policeman stopped just behind us on the hill as well. And it was okay for a moment until Lynn informed me, the one thing I've not told you, Paul, is my headlights not working, my handbrake's not working either. So she had her foot on the brake, and the copper's just behind us, and uh, he was a bit like, um, you know the character John Cleese? Do You know the actor John Cleese? He's very much like that guy, he was kind of very animated. And um, Lynn panicked, because Lynn's a good girl. Lynn's, uh, I don't know if you're a good girl, Lynn's a good girl. She don't like to get in trouble, she does not like to be told off. So she starts to panic. So he asks her certain questions, what are you doing? And she keeps looking at me, what are you doing? What are we doing? We're just going out for a drive. We're just going out for a drive. <laughs> Have you been drinking? I don't know if we've been, no we've not been, no, no, no we've not been drinking. Now, you'll think I'm making this up, but this is the honest truth. He asked her, what's her name? And she looked to me, Lynn, Lynn, Lynn. And as she's having this conversation, he was doing this weird thing where he was like sliding that way. And then we realized he wasn't moving, we were. And there was this enormous bang, and we smashed the front of his whole police car completely. Headlights like dangling off, it was really bad. That was our first date. On our first date, date, I told Lynn, I was gonna be a missionary. That was the two things that happened on our first date. And our first date, it's good I don't believe in omens, but it was a bit of a rocky start. our our courtship, we we split up and got back together again I don't know how many times during the time that we were dating before we got engaged. And part of the reason was because I got something wrong. And the thing I got wrong was I thought God was calling me to be a missionary and Lynn knew that she wasn't being called to Africa or Papua New Guinea or some of these places. Um, but I really wanted someone who wouldn't just be devoted to me, but be devoted with me. Not just devoted to me, but someone who'd be devoted with me. It was really weird, some of the things that I got asked when I was younger, in my early 20s. Um, um, there was talk of things that had to grow in the church where we were in Manchester, and somebody came to me. Um, now, I'd just come out of that, the post-punk scene, so I used to kind of dye my hair weird and and, and do all sorts of stuff, and wear pajamas at night, and it's so weird, and um, all sorts of punk clothes, and put um, black makeup on, and then do all this, and have it all over my eye. I was weird, okay, and I was the only weird person in my church. And not like now, but I was the only. Sorry, but I was I was the only weird weird looking person in my church. And somebody came to me one day and said, "Hey, Paul, what do you think? How will we know the sign of revival?" And I joked and said. I don't know, but if revival comes, there'll be a pretty girl walks in, she'll have black spiky hair, she'll have beautiful eyes, and I'll marry her. And that's exactly what happened. I was giving out hymn books one day, and Lynn walked in, she had black spiky hair, beautiful eyes, and we got married. And I think even then I knew, deep down then, I needed I needed somebody who didn't just like me, uh, but wanted to be be like me, that we would we need to be together. We need to be committed to to what happened. And I think God was involved as well. There was um, a moment where I almost got, before I met Lynn, almost got, um, kind of, got, um, in, uh, kind of got, got dating with another girl. Uh, I'm a Gibbs, it just happens. So, <laughs> so and then what happened was that um, it was really weird. Um, so I don't know whether you believe you get visions and things like that and those things are for today, but I was praying about this whole potential relationship and this strong picture came in my mind of a traffic light, English traffic lights. So English traffic lights. Um, when you stop, it's, it's, you know, stop, red, and then amber, get ready to stop, and then, you know, sorry, green, then get ready to stop, and then stop. And reverse, when you leave, it's, it's, it's red, and then it's amber, get ready to go, and then green go. And th- these traffic lights came into my head. It was as though God was saying to me, no, this is not the right person. Wait, the right person is coming. And uh, in my head, even, and that sounds strange, but in my head, I had this idea of three months. Right person's coming, and sure enough, three months later, I met Lynn. And it was as though God was kind of coordinating the whole thing, or at least that's why I felt. And uh, the, the verse for, for our marriage is taken from Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So it was against this passage. I just wait to, to to set this up a little bit that we need other people, don't we? And for us, that core of three strands is me and Lynn and the Lord. And the difference, we've said this before, the difference between a non-Christian and a follower of Christ is purpose. A non-Christian gets to decide their purpose. A follower of Jesus has to discover it because God has a purpose for us. And God gave me someone and God gave Lynn someone who shared this common purpose. But it's not just us two. As we think about being voted, we need to understand that when we're, when we're working towards God's purposes, then Christ is more de- uh, devoted to God's purpose in our lives than we will ever be. He's completely and utterly devoted to God's work in your life and what God is doing through your life. And that's never been more clear to me from Scripture than from the passage I'm about to read. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd love it if you could turn to Luke chapter 22, We've been asking these three questions as we've asked about how do we fuel our devotion. What do I desire? So what is the picture in my mind I'm painting that I want to aim for? The word of God says that without vision, people throw off restraint. In other words, without vision, without a clear picture where God is leading us, we can lose discipline. Think about all the athletes who are disciplined because they know what they're aiming for. And Luke uh, chapter 22 helps us. With this, Luke chapter 22. The second thing is, what must I deny? We know that if we're devoted, there's something we have to deny, and there's something we have to be devoted to. So my question is, what did he desire? What does Christ desire? So Luke chapter 22, verse 42. um, Jesus says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Uh, A cup, um, in in the word of God, is symbolic in many different ways. In fact, somebody's left a a cup here. So a cup is, cups were very symbolic. Um, You'll notice in the passage of scripture, sometimes the psalmist says, my cup overflows. Uh, And we get this sense of, I'm just so full of joy. Actually, it's a very specific thing it means. So if you had a guest, and you didn't want your guest to ever leave, or you want to say to your guest, you can stay as long as you possibly want. You would pour something into their cup until it overflowed. That was the symbol. It was a gesture. So when the psalmist says, my cup overflows, what he's saying is God never wants me to leave him. Um, when it comes to the Passover, there were four cups, that were, that were, uh, cups of wine that were taken on the Passover. That's why the disciples were so sleepy on this night. They had four cups of wine. Uh, One of them was a special cup, and when people took this cup, it's the cup that we we take at communion, and there's a phrase that goes along with it, and what it's saying is we're we're making a covenant together, and we're we're committing to a shared destiny for good or ill. A shared destiny for good or for ill. It's where we get this idea of marriage. You know, when me and Lynn got married, we promised each other we would stay married in sickness or in health, and Jesus is devoted to his purposes. Sometimes I think we romanticize the gospel, uh, and we say things like, well, Jesus came and died because he loved us so much, and as I'm sure Jesus does, he has incredible compassion. It's not the primary reason he came. We say things like, how much does Jesus love you? And we turn the gospel into like a Hallmark movie, but the reality is the reason Jesus came was his absolute committed devotion to the father's will that's why he came the word of god says it so many different times let me just give you three verses john uh, verse 638 for i came down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him that sent me 1 john 4 verse 10 herein is love not that we love god but he loved us and sent his son to be the property." i can never say that word a propitiation for our sins, and John 3:16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. What's the one thing more painful than pain? Is seeing the person you love go through pain, losing a child. And yet God sent His Son, and Jesus responded to the Father's will. He's more committed to God's purpose in your life than you ever will be, or I ever will be. He's completely and absolutely desiring of that. He desires everything God's got for you. Everything the Father has for you will come to fruition. It's a wonderful thing to know that I've got Lynn, but I've got Jesus on my side as well. It's a powerful, powerful thing. But what did he deny? What did he deny. Let's read this passage then, Luke chapter 22 from verse 39. I'm going to read a few verses uh, with you. Luke 22 verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat were like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up. And pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So I'll be honest with you. Um, Up until about three or four or five years ago, I always felt this was kind of like a formality that Jesus went through. I know that sounds weird. Almost as though it was, in my mind, Jesus is praying. He's really wrestling with what's about to happen. But the phrase, not my will, but your will, just kind of like, anyway, not my will, but your will, It's almost as though he's saying, Okay, I'm going to do this. That's that's the impression, a kind of formality, kind of like, he's almost, that's part of the promise. Not my will, your will, I'm going to do this. What I didn't realize is there's a lot more going on here than I first realized. So if you've been to a Havarim group, as as the way we discover the Bible, we realize there are lots of layers to the Word of God. And, And there are things that are hidden on the surface, but when you look a bit deeper, it's helping us understand what's really going on in the heart of someone, what they're really thinking about. And this passage is really clear. Why did Jesus go to the Mount of Olives to pray this prayer? Why didn't he just pray this prayer wherever he was? Why did he go specifically to this place on purpose? Why did he say these words? What was going on? Well, the Mount of Olives is an interesting place. So, there's something in the Bible called a remes. I'm just saying this for those who don't know this yet. A remes is a way of saying something without saying it. So, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, which is actually about the crucifixion and the benefit of the crucifixion. In fact, Psalm 22 is about the fact that God has not forsaken his son. So, you say something invoking the whole thing. Sometimes it can be a number Sometimes you, you, you share a number that has some kind of specific meaning. Sometimes you leave something out. Sometimes you do something like, we, we looked at Havering recently, when Jesus writes uh, on the ground, when he writes on the dust of the floor. Uh, at surface level, we don't know what he wrote. When we understand scripture and study, we know, we know what he wrote. By the, by the very thing he did, he was invoking to memory another scripture. Sometimes it's the place you go. In this place, Jesus went somewhere to bring back a memory of a passage of Scripture. So on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah um, prophesied it would be a place that would be split and create an escape route. Let me just read uh, the prophecy um, to you. Um, It says this in Zechariah 14, verse 4. On that date, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It's talking about the Messiah, Jesus. East of Jerusalem... And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. What's interesting, I just read this recently, is the intercontinental chain of hotels put a hotel on the top of the Mount of Olives in 1964. Um, They had to move it from where it was planned to be because there's a fault line running from east to west on the Mount of Olives. And now it's called the Hotel of the Seven Arches. Jesus goes there, I believe, because he's reminding God of his promise. This is an escape route. This is a place where it says, when the Messiah will touch, stand there, it will be split. It doesn't happen in that moment. Now you might think, well, that's just a coincidence. He just happens to go there And you would think that, unless you read that just slightly earlier on in the night, he prophesied, sorry, he he reminds people of the prophecy from Zechariah. Uh, If you remember, he says this, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's reminding, he's reminded of this prophecy. When Jesus goes there, I think, I believe, he's going there hoping this will happen. He's wrestling and he doesn't. Have you ever felt like that? You know God's got promises for you. You know God's going to do stuff, and it doesn't happen when you expect it to happen. And so he wrestles. And he comes to this point where he's able to say, not my will, but your will. What's kind of amazing about that, when you think about that, it's the only time in the Bible where the father and the son appear to have separate wills. They have a separate desire. It's mind-blowing when you think about that. And yet, during this night, something happens where the Son's will becomes submissive to the Father's will. What happened? What did Jesus do? What can I learn from that? When I want to be devoted, what can I learn from what Jesus did? Because there are many times in my life when, when I don't want to do what the, the Father's telling me to do. You know, sometimes we think that temptation is when we disagree with God. You ever thought that? People said, that well, when, when you disagree with God, when you think God's got it wrong, when you think God's unfair, when you think God's at fault, it's not really. Most of the times I've been tempted. I don't think it's wrong. I just want to do it. Or I just don't want to do it. So perhaps the first thing we need to understand is what kind of sin was Jesus struggling with? In, in the Jewish mindset, there are three categories, well, three main categories of sin. There are some other types. There's pesha. I want to encourage you with this, by the way never been encouraged by sin before, but I want to encourage you. Pesha is the kind of sin when your purpose is saying to God, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me, and I'm purposely going to do my own thing because I'm not submitting to you. I'm going to do my own thing. And we sin, we break a commandment. Then there's A1. A1 is the kind of sin where we're wanting to follow God, we're wanting to do God's will, but we sometimes sin. Anybody not done that? Okay, good. For most of us who are, who are followers of Jesus, this is the category of sin that most of us mainly struggle with. I want to, and Paul said the same thing. I want to do the right thing. Paul the Apostle said, I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the thing I don't want to do. There's a whole tongue twister in the, in the passage, the word of God there. I want to do the right thing. I just can't seem to do it. Let me encourage you. Many of us have moved forward. If you've given your life to Jesus, you've moved forward. If you've come to that place where you've submitted your life to God, you've moved forward. You're in a better place now than you were. And yeah, you may be struggling with sin, but if your heart is leaned towards God, if you're saying, I'm so sorry, I repent, God understands and you're, you're moving in the right direction. But Jesus wasn't struggling with either of these categories of sin, he certainly wasn't rebellious against God. And he never sinned. He never broke the commandments. So what was Jesus really struggling with? Uh, There's a further category of sin called het. Uh, this This is when you see something you could do to advance the kingdom, but you don't. It's not breaking your commandments. It's not doing the best you can do. And that's what Jesus is struggling with here. There's this thing. He doesn't have to do it where he wants to do that thing that's going to make the difference. He wants, to, he wants to see the Father's will come about. How does he do it? What does he do? What is the action that he does? What can I learn from that? So I think it's too simple to say, well, he was God. Of course he overcame sin. He was God. So it's easy for him. The word God says this in Hebrews 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So he, he's wrestling. He's tempted. It's a real temptation. I believe, personally, he's really looking for a way out. But when he realizes it's not going to happen, he doesn't run away, he goes forward. How does he do that? Let me ask you a question. How do you, how do you do that sometimes? How do you force yourself to do the thing that you don't want to do? How do you do that? Some of us have got different ways. We just come back from holiday. So um, when I was younger, I used to surf. Now I don't surf. I do this. Um, I bodyboard, so I have fins and this. And... Um, so, I, I get scared. I'm always, I've had to be rescued at sea four times. Um, once in Croyd Bay, which was in uh, England. Once in, um, I, I cried out for help in Lanzarote, nobody actually helped me, I managed to get back. Um, once in um, Hawaii, and once um, somewhere else I've forgotten about. So, f- four times. In fact, the first time I would be dead today unless, I, I, unless these three guys came out to rescue me. I was in a place called Croyd Bay. And there was a terrible riptide. I got taken away from the beach and around a head, uh, kind of a head, um, like a rock point. Um, So there was no beach left. It was just waves and rocks. And it was terrifying. And I prayed God rescue me. And three guys came, just happened to come out, surfing with crash helmets on, because it was such dangerous. And they came. They couldn't get me back to the beach, but they got me back to a little section where there was a break in the rocks, pushed me. I caught a wave, hit like the, the, the edge, I'd cut some bruises, went back to Lynn, like dripping with blood, but I was alive. So I did get terrified at sea. Um, even sailing, not so much on this lake, uh, but uh, I sailed in, in Newport uh, in Rhode Island a while back, and, um, and there was a big harbour, and I got us this sailboat, and I wanted to go across the harbour. There was all sorts of massive boats and liners and all sorts of things coming in and out of this harbour. It was very, like lots of waves. I wanted to get to the other end, and I went out, Lost my nerve, came back again. And I have this thing, I'll explain what it is in a minute. And I thought, no, I'm going to do it. So I came back out again, got a bit further, came back again. The fifth attempt, I finally did it. You know what helps me move forward? Pride. I, I, I can't help, I can't face being a coward. So when I see those waves, I think to myself, I need to get out into those waves. And, and pride drives me forward. This year, I lost my nerve completely. And this year, the waves were about this big. They're bigger than I normally go in. Probably about two-thirds of that I normal, okay with. And uh, there was a big, and I just lost my nerve. So what I realized is pride only takes me so far. And um, it could be that what you use to drive you forward only takes you so far. But, but Jesus did something. Jesus did something that I think is, is really important. What did he do? He knelt. Jesus knelt. And kneeling isn't something we do in church. It's something that I used to do in my church years ago. but It's something I don't often see us doing. Maybe we do it in private. Kneeling is a very, very powerful act. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. What's sad is, apart from two main occasions, the Jews don't kneel to pray anymore because they see it as a Christian thing to do. So they don't do it, apparently. Which is shame because kneeling does certain things. Kneeling disengages you from the temptation to fight temptation in other ways. It stops you from panicking. Taking the time out to kneel and pray stops you from panicking. It stops you from doing something rash as a way of escaping what you must do. Kneeling stops you from thinking something foolish and saying something stupid. Anybody ever said something stupid in the moment? No. It keeps you spiritually calm. Kneeling immediately connects with you and the real temptation, the will. It's a way of taking the wind out of the sails of temptation because kneeling says by its definitive action, not my will, but your will. Both the intended and what's called the implied meaning of this passage in scripture asked me this question. I wrote this down a few weeks ago. When was the last time I knelt not because I was in church, but because I was in temptation. When was the last time you knelt? Not because you were in church, or it's the time to pray at night by your bed, but because you're in temptation. What well, Jesus did. And he's God. And he was in temptation and it was powerful. And perhaps he was expecting something to happen, that didn't happen. I don't know. Maybe that's just my guess. But he's wrestling. And he kneels and encourages his disciples to do the same. He kneels because there's something about kneeling that says, not my will, your will. I think it's probably very rare that anyone, certainly me, I know, when I'm tempted, if I kneel, it's very rare I will get up from kneeling and still go and commit that sin. It's, it's It's a way of pressing the pause button. And it's powerful. And I would encourage you that maybe we need to kneel a little bit more often. What was Jesus devoted to? Finishing. That's what he was devoted to. Finishing. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, what do we know? We know this. Jesus didn't come to simply rescue us. He came to recruit us. He has a purpose for us. We know that he wants us to be devoted by ourselves, not without other people, but he wants us to be devoted. He doesn't want us to come to church or do things and expect somebody to entertain us. He wants us to bring something. He has a purpose that we discover we don't decide, and then we go on a journey, and he's with us devoted to that purpose along the way and the end goal is to finish to complete the thing that God is doing in you and the thing that God is doing through you and um, this came to my mind this week and some God spoke to me about something this week I'm just gonna share it with you as a, as a finish um, some of a personal thing uh, these are three people who played a role in my life um, and there's a common denominator between all three of them I asked all three of them to do something with me and they all said no. <laughs> so the first guy is Ian. on the left is called Ian. Um, many, many, many years ago when we were both young, in our early 20s, i just come back to Lord, Ian and I went to school together, both of us had a vision to reach young people in Manchester. In fact, both of us spent a day fasting, we actually gave up at tea time, but both of us spent a day fasting Uh, For the young people in Manchester. And both of us went to our pastors, um, we would be in different churches, and got the pastors together and said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do some kind of team to reach young people in Manchester? Um, I asked him to lead it and to head it up. He said no, he did something else. Nick, um, Nick Riches, in the late 90s, when we were running pays and doing stuff, I didn't want to preach. I didn't like preaching, I didn't enjoy teaching. And I said to him, he was quite charismatic, quite a fun guy. And I said to him, he looks, he's starting to look like Michael Caine, I've noticed now. But when he was young, he was very thin. And I said to him, hey, Nick, maybe you're, you're funny, you're charismatic. Will you go and be the person who goes and preaches and recruits and tells people about the vision and I'll just manage it? He said to me, no. Um, in the, I don't know what it would have been, around 2010, Uh, Harry, who's not Texan, he's Irish, uh, is my pastor from years and years ago. I asked him, because people saying to me, he needs to write a book on Paige. I said to him, will you write the book? He said, no. What's interesting to me is this, is that because they all said no, I ended up starting Paige, which is one of the most important things I've ever done in my life. I ended up teaching, which is one of the most important things in my life, and I ended up writing a book. And these are three things that, for me, Have been quite effective. So it's the question I've got to ask you is maybe the thing you're most afraid of is the thing that will actually most impact the world. Perhaps. It was with me. I praise God that these three guys said no. I'll just finish with this. Um, I hope it's okay to read this out. Um, So, Ian, um, Ian went on into politics and became really successful. And um, a few years ago, he reconnected with me. He's pretty depressed and pretty down. And he shared a story with me. And I asked him, I said, maybe, maybe you could write that out so I can, because he wanted to encourage the people that I work with. And I said, maybe you could write that out just to help them understand how important, what we do, what's happened this week, what we do, as David said, as we reach the community, how important that is. And he wrote, so he wrote an open letter. Um, so he worked with uh, Tony Blair, I don't know if you know who Tony Blair was, yeah. Tony Blair is one of the Prime Ministers of England. So I'm just going to read this out in finition if that's okay, just to encourage you. So let me just read the letter he wrote. I looked around the people that were crammed into the room. I glanced familiar faces, members of the Cabinet, and MPs from around the country. It was 2005, and I was in 10 Downing Street waiting for the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, to arrive. I was there to celebrate a historic third term that the party had just convincingly won. I was proud that the election campaigns that I had managed secured some of the best results in the country, and I knew that my invitation to Downing Street to celebrate with the party elite only enhanced my growing reputation within the party. The atmosphere was electric. Months of round-the-clock campaigning were at an end. It was time to celebrate. The Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and his wife, Sherry, entered the room, slowly working his way down the line until he stopped at me. Hello, Ian. Great work with the campaigns. Utterly fantastic, he said. I thanked him for his kind words and encouragement and wanted to make the most of the opportunity. I swung the conversation round to the Middle East debate and with a brass neck attitude that most Mancunians would be proud of, I reminded him of the uniqueness of Israel. Several drinks later, and... Feeling the worst for wear, I returned to my hotel, lay on the bed. I replayed the last few months and my conversation with Tony in my mind. I'm sure you will agree with me that I should have been both delighted and proud of my achievements. But I can tell you, I was not. Like most people who get involved in politics, I wanted to help change Britain for the good, to make Britain a fairer society for all, not just a few. And although it was pleasing to see the positive impacts of our policy slowly making a difference, I began to really understand that only a genuine spiritual renewal was going to change hearts and minds. Moreover, I began to examine my own heart. There was no denying that I'd lost my focus, that my own walk with God was beginning to suffer. I felt far removed from the prophetic words spoken over me Some years ago by well-known leaders. That night, that very night, I recalled in my mind and spirit of the day some 20 years earlier when me and my friend Paul dreamed big and prayed for the young people. Again of what God, I dreamed again of what God wanted to do in the lives of the young people at Manchester. Oh, the wonder of it. Time and space restricts me from describing why I chose a different path. Suffice to say, but I realized that I'd let my dreams become enshrouded with doubts, choked with the worries of the world, beguiled with fear. I'm continually amazed with what God has done with Pays and Paul, and without being too introspective, ponder how our paths so fundamentally diverged. The path I chose led me to meet prime ministers, presidents, and thousands of ordinary people, and whilst wanting to see more Christians involved in the political fabric of our nations, it will never compare to bringing someone into the kingdom of God. So, listener, keep close to God, be honest, keep close to your partner, and be brave. I I was really moved by that. I remember when he wrote that. But Here's a, a guy who achieves what he really wanted to achieve, and yet what you and I can do on a daily basis, he would say, is more important. And so, as we finish this whole series of fueling our devotion, we've given you six practices, six things you can do. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Have a daily time with God. Fast on a regular basis. Have communion, because communion is a pause where we check our relationships. Six things. If you weren't there for some of them, and then and maybe you could just look at the podcast. But I want to encourage you, what God has put in you makes you the most powerful people on the planet, whether you feel like it or not. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, this uh, week has been a, a very tough week um, for, for members of our community. And we pray again a blessing upon them. We thank you for those that were able to comfort and bring a blessing in different ways, using their skills, whether it was music, or words, or cooking, wherever it might be, Lord, and we, we just pray again, you will remind us of the importance of what you've placed in our hearts, who you've called us to be, and the things you've called us to give. Lord, we thank you that even though you wrestled on that mount, even though you wrestled there, Lord Jesus, we, we just thank you, for submitting so that we could be saved. And Lord, we pray right now as we just continue to worship you just for a few minutes. You are sealing our hearts and minds the things that, uh, well, that we have forgotten. Lord, remind us to kneel. Remind us to bow before you. Remind us of your greatness and your awesomeness, we pray. And remind us of the dreams that you put in our lives, Lord. In your name we ask it. Amen.